All right, please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. We will be looking uh, at this book written by this minor prophet over the next few weeks. Um, It's kind of a short book, so I don't really anticipate it will take very long to cover it, but at least the next few weeks, Lord willing, we'll we'll be parked here. Um, As we like to do when we begin a a new book, Uh, I'm just going to make a few introductory remarks before we get into the text um, to ensure that we have the proper context when we get there. Um, Most likely, Habakkuk was prophesying during the reign of King Jehoiakim, which is why we read that uh, scripture this morning for our Old Testament reading. And uh, this would have been around 609 B.C. to 598 B.C. That was the reign of King Jehoiakim. This would have been about within a decade or so before the Babylonian captivity would begin. Um, What we know about this king is that he was the son of the faithful king, the last faithful king uh, in Judah, Josiah. Um, Josiah was a king who made a lot of reforms and he was told um, beforehand this kingdom, it's over. It's going to come to an end, but not in your days because you've been faithful. So Jehoiakim was the son of this man who was the last faithful king in Judah. Um, He was installed as the Judean king by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho after he had deposed Jehoiakim's brother Jehoahaz and took him away captive to Egypt. So The circumstances under which he rose to power were suspect from the start, um, but it would get worse. Um, Scripture tells us that Jehoiakim did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done, a reference to the rebellion of the previous wicked kings and Manasseh in particular, um, whose rebellion included various types of idolatry and even offering his own son as a burnt offering to idols. That's the kind of level of sin we're looking at here. And despite the reforms that were made by Josiah, the people quickly fell back into this sort of wickedness after his death. It was King Jehoiakim who would come to an agreement with King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to become their vassal state. And it was also this king who would rebel against Babylon and set into motion the events which would lead to the end of the Judean kingdom. In other words, many of the events prophesied by Habakkuk were to come to pass in a very, very short amount of time. This is not like what we were reading when we were in Micah the last time I stood up to do one of these where it was going to happen, but it was a little... little distance in the future. No, we're here now. It's about to happen. Um, So with this background in mind, let's look at text itself. We're going to start in (coughs) verse 1 of chapter 1 and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, 
and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And the Lord would answer him, Look among the nations and see, and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So then Habakkuk replies, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray now that you would help me to faithfully exposit this text. We pray that you would edify your saints by it. And most of all, that you would glorify your name by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book uh, is introduced this way. It says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, or perhaps more properly, and maybe some of your translations actually say it this way, um, it was the burden that he saw. We see over and over again that uh, carrying burdens was what Old Testament prophets did, all of them. We've been going through uh, what's called the Minor Prophets for quite some time now. And um, I think we do see some reoccurring themes in all of them. One of those themes is that these prophets were tasked with bearing bad news. 
to a people that they loved. God's prophets loved God's people and the sinful estate into which the people had fallen was always a burden to them. It's not fun to talk to people about their sin. Especially if you love them. It hurts. It's hard. And you have to put up with perhaps fears and anxieties about what will this do to my relationship with them. Because now we're not playing nice. We're not saying nice little fuzzy things that makes everybody feel warm inside. But instead we're showing real love by telling the truth. That's what prophets were called to do. And they were they carried basically this, this message of uh, calling God's people to repent and not only calling them to repent but pronouncing God's righteous judgment and curses upon them should they not heed those warnings. Obviously these men were not very popular. Um, I mean it makes sense. People don't usually like to be told that they're wretched vile sinners who will incur the wrath, the judgment God unless he graciously chooses to save them. I mean, that's... You're not going to win a a large following doing that. Um, But um, that's what what the prophets were called to do. Even though... uh, Even though people don't like to be told that, that's the loving thing to do, is to tell them that. And truly, in this regard, not much has changed. Faithful preachers of the gospel are often viewed as hateful, bigoted, religious zealots in our modern context. How dare we say that God made them male and female, which means we don't choose which one of those we are. Or how dare we define a woman as an adult female, even if we don't have a biology degree. Some of you will have caught that. (laughs) Right. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, I went there. Um, How dare we call a woman's so-called right to choose murder? How dare we say the only valid sexual relationship is one that's between a man and his wife within the marriage covenant? How dare we say that not all religions are valid and that Jesus is the only way to God? How dare we say your life is not your own because human life is meant to glorify God and not the other way around. We're God's images. He's not ours. How dare we say that God saves His people to do good works which glorify Him which means we suffer with Christ in this life. Or to say this differently, this ain't about living your best life now. And I could keep going, but I think you get the point. 
faithful preachers and practitioners of the gospel will be hated by this world because we're not telling them what they want to hear. We're telling them the truth. Jesus told his disciples that this is what we should expect and the principle carries on to us today. Jonah just read this in the New Testament reading, but uh, I'm going to read this again. In Christ's own words, in John 15, um, verses 18 through 20, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now the context there was directly being spoken to the apostles, but the principle carries on to us, uh, Christ's disciples who are on earth now. And the remainder of the first two chapters in Habakkuk is now going to be a conversation between Yahweh and the prophet. Okay? So the righteous prophet begins this conversation with his complaint to the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at the wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Here the prophet is crying out to God about the injustice in the land. prophet called by God to call the people of the land to repent of this wickedness. He was burdened. Israel was supposed to be a holy nation whose law would be the marvel of the surrounding nations, but instead the people had become corrupted. They had sought to go their own way. They wanted a king like the nations around them and a law which reflected the same. The predictable outcome was that the holy nation had become a functionally pagan nation, just like the nations around it. The law was being misused, misapplied, to benefit certain well-connected people. It had nothing to do with justice. The law was perverted to become a means for the attainment of power, wealth, and social status. In this environment, the righteous were abused and the wicked prevailed. The law had been paralyzed and might would make right. Sound familiar? So the prophet asked a question that I believe all of us have asked in times of suffering ourselves. If you haven't, you will. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? We all have those times where maybe it seems like we can never get ahead of things. As soon as we get all the issues that we were facing fixed, 
Well, here comes the next set of problems with no rest in between. It's overwhelming. Or at least it can be. There's also times that uh, maybe we feel that we make a real effort to be just and fair in our relationships or our business dealings only to be slandered or taken advantage of. Or maybe on a more societal scale, it seems more and more the laws of the land are meant to punish hardworking, responsible people who seek to make an honest living while rewarding slothful, lazy, thieving, immoral people. There's no justice for the pre-born children who are being slaughtered in this country every day. Gross immorality and idolatry have become the rule instead of the exception. And it just seems as if God is absent. And we grow discouraged. How long will you allow this injustice and this filth to continue, Lord? How long until you send revival to our churches and to our nation? How long will you allow your faithful people to suffer under the hands of wicked men? Pay attention to how the Lord answers Habakkuk. He doesn't get on to him. That's the first thing. He doesn't rebuke him. Because Habakkuk is not questioning whether God is just. He's assuming God is just. But what he sees in front of his face doesn't match that. He doesn't understand. It's an honest inquiry. So God says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In other words, Habakkuk, it may seem to you as if I am sitting by idly and allowing this injustice to occur against my people. But the fact of the matter is that I've been working in a way that you could not see this entire time. In fact, it would blow your mind if you could see all of the moving parts that I've put in place to make sure that justice will be done. Not only will the injustices of the people be punished, but they will be punished quickly and swiftly. The power and wealth attained through injustice soon will be lost. The violent soon will be violated. The destructive soon will be destroyed. The contentious soon will be unable to contend. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Oh, the irony that God would use a people like this to punish Judah. 
Habakkuk complained to the Lord of the violence and the lawlessness of Judah. He essentially complained that it had devolved into a nation of, to use this quote, guilty men whose own might is their God. And Yahweh revealed to him that he would be punishing that violence and that lawlessness and that guilt by means of another nation of guilty men who were more violent and lawless and whose might was their God. In other words, he would punish Judah by means of its own sin. This is what this is the logical conclusion of the road you're on, guys. I'm going to give it to you. It's what you wanted. An idolatrous, lawless, violent people would be God's means of punishing them. Might makes right is great when you're the one who's mighty. It's not so great when you're not. And that's what Judah was about to find out. Judah broke its covenant with God and spurned its wisdom, that is, God's law, before the nations to become like the neighboring nations. And for this, Judah would cease to be a nation at all. And there's a lesson in this for the church today. We are called to be a holy and a separated people. But for quite some time, there's been this movement which says we must show the world that we're like them in order to reach them. You've got to meet people where they are, right? And maybe there's some truth to that. But I think that applies when we're doing that whole go and disciple thing, not when they're coming here. All right? We change our churches to incorporate things that would be attractive to the world to get them inside the church doors. And we keep doing this over and over until finally the church does not look so much like the church anymore. Rather, it looks more like the world that we're supposed to be reaching in the first place. And truth be told, the world sees through this, and now the amount of people that identify as Christian is diminishing. Why why am I going to go to church? They're doing the same things that I do at home. What's the point? I don't have to drive over there and, you know, talk to people. I can just do it in my house. I can can fix coffee at my house. I don't need that coffee bar. I can have a Super Bowl party at my house. I don't need to go to church for that. Um, I can dress up like a cowboy and ride on a horse. Because there are such things as cowboy churches, in case you don't know that. I can ride my motorcycle or whatever you want to fill in the blank with because I'm actually naming things I know about, not I've just heard. I know about these things. To say this plainly, the seeker-sensitive model of church growth is nothing other than the paganizing of the church. And that's why we don't do that here. This is a Christian church. The triune God has revealed how He is to be worshipped in the Holy Scriptures, and so that, nothing more and nothing less, is what we do here, and that's what we're called to do wherever God's people gather. And God help us to always be striving to meet that standard. 
I mean, it could be tempting, you know. For a while, that seeker-sensitive thing can have some explosive growth. And then they go to the next thrill. We need to be ever vigilant that we are not falling into worldly methods of evangelism. The Great Commission is disciple the nations, not fill the church role. It's disciple the nations, not get as many um, professions of faith as you possibly can, baptize as many people as you possibly can, and then celebrate because our numbers are high. It's disciple the nations, which means we're not supposed to be like them. We're supposed to be calling them to be like Jesus. But getting back to the text here, Yahweh answers Habakkuk's first complaint by showing that he will indeed punish the wicked in the land. He's not sitting idly by and watching even if it may seem that way. But this is not what the prophet was expecting to hear. God was going to punish the evil, but wow, that's how he's going to do it? Habakkuk responds to the Lord and says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So despite his shock and his horror at what God had told him, Habakkuk maintained his faith in the Lord. That will be really important moving forward. He understood what was about to happen to the kingdom. I mean the worldly Judean kingdom. He understood what was about to happen, but he also knew that the Lord would not utterly destroy his people. He would maintain covenant faithfulness even when his covenant people did not. So he continued, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. But then he starts to ask more questions. So he affirms, I know you're just. I know you are the one true God. I may be perplexed that you're bringing these pagans who worship false gods and they're much more vicious than this people. I may be perplexed by that, but I know you're righteous. I'm not questioning that. So why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Remember, um, Babylon and Israel were linked together for a time. Israel was a vassal state to Babylon. So the reference to traitors is, you are supposed to be our allies, now you're destroying us. You've betrayed us. That's the reference there for traitors. Again, Habakkuk was not questioning the righteousness of God But his question was 
that since God is righteous and has no evil within him, how could he allow a nation of traitors like the Babylonians to destroy a nation like Judah, which though it had its problems, because that's what this started out as, talking about the problems in Judah, but nevertheless, at least in Habakkuk's view, this was a more righteous nation than Babylon, so how could that be the means of justice? This wicked, pagan nation. This is how you're going to bring justice? And I mean, I think there may be some uh, validity to this. I mean, after all, despite the rampant wickedness in Judah, there still remained a faithful remnant who worshipped the true God in Judah. At this time, the temple was still standing. God's presence was there in Jerusalem. So how could a greater evil be a legitimate means of punishing a lesser evil? That's essentially what the question is. Now he goes on to describe the evil of the Babylonian Empire. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. That is, they had nobody to protect them. Uh, Remember when we were in Micah, we talked about the idea that as goes the king, so goes the kingdom, right? The king was basically the, the means of protection. So Babylon was taking away kings and destroying kingdoms like it was nothing. And this was leaving a defenseless people behind. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. In other words, Babylon would capture some nations slowly, or one by one as you do when you catch fish with a hook. Other nations would be quickly defeated and gathered as you gather several fish simultaneously with a net. But the point is, whether we're doing it slowly or quickly, they're doing it. This evil nation is just sweeping nation after nation under the rug. Therefore he, Babylon, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. This is just another way of restating that their own might, particularly their military might, was their god. I mean, they had their false deity that they worshipped, the statue that they might bow down to, but in their heart of hearts, they were their own God. We're more mighty, more powerful than the rest of y'all. So stop us. You can't. We're more mighty than you. Might makes right. So that being the case, they would sacrifice to their might, their military might. Um, And perhaps the sacrifice that's being mentioned here is those that they were defeating, those that they were destroying. Given the question that Habakkuk asks in the next verse, I find that to be very likely. I think that's exactly what he meant. They sacrifice these other peoples to themselves. They're defeating them just because. So the next question is, is he then 
to keep on employing his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I mean, these are the bad boys of the region, so to speak. Nobody can stop them. And Habakkuk sees very clearly, uh, unless something is going to happen here, nobody can stop these guys, so they can just keep doing this and keep doing this as long as it pleases them. But he's talking to the one he knows is almighty, the one he knows is just, and so he's asking, how long is this going to happen? Are you going to allow them to do this forever? And we've kind of come full circle here, haven't we? The prophet began by asking God how long would he allow injustice to go on in the land. Here he asks the same question again, but in a different context. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Quote, If he look about him, he sees nothing but violence done by Israel. If he look before him, he sees nothing but violence done against Israel. And it is hard to say which is the more melancholy sight. End quote. See how this is a burden? These evil, wicked people that I love, that my God loves, they're about to be destroyed because they're evil and they're wicked. And I've tried to tell them that they need to repent, but they won't because they know more. They know more than God. They want to be like the world. So they'll get the world's reward. And I can't stop it. Why? Why, Lord? Habakkuk was perplexed, but again, his faith was not shaken. His line of questioning displays a lack of understanding, but not a lack of faith. In fact, Habakkuk's faith is proven in the way he finishes his second complaint. And really the way he started it as well. But the way he uh, finishes it, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And Lord willing, we will look at the Lord's response to this second complaint next week. I'm not going to try to hold it here and go through the entire second chapter as well. But at this point, where we're at right now in the text, Habakkuk did not have all the answers to the difficult questions of life which were perplexing him. But he did have faith in the one he knew would do right in the end. And this is how I want to close this morning. I want to encourage you that when you're going through trials and you're going through suffering, that you can do so knowing that it's not in vain. whether we can see the purpose or not, and oftentimes we can't, we know that everything does have a purpose. We know that the God that we serve works all things, including the suffering of His saints, for our good and for His glory. We know, as Abraham did, that the judge of all the earth will do right. So my encouragement 
to all of you and myself is rest in Him and find peace in our sovereign Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to think on these things throughout this week and really going forward. We don't always understand the evil that goes on around us. Why do you allow this to happen? And it's extremely discouraging at times. It's discouraging when we try to love people and tell them the truth and they don't receive it. And in fact, even return hate. But nevertheless, we know that if we're going to love them properly, we have to do it. Even if they hate us for it, we have to do it. And more importantly, to be faithful to you, we have to tell people the truth and call them to repent. And so I pray that you would help us to remain faithful, to always remember that our suffering is not without a purpose. Um, You are doing, whether we see it or not, you are doing something in all of history that's pointing to something greater. And we pray for the hastening of the coming of our Lord and the establishment of righteousness in all the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.